Welcome to Sport Media and Tech. I'm Keel Blake. On this episode, Mark Hotchkin and I spend time with Jason Siegel, President and CEO of the Greater Orlando Sports Commission, and Joe Bertoletti, Senior Associate Director of Sport Tourism for the City of Surprise, Arizona. We discuss the economic impact of sport tourists and how events help build their region's identities. A, thanks for having me, and uh, B, a pleasure to be with uh, y'all this morning. Um, I had a, uh, a really interesting path. I went to school pre-med. I uh, switched into the business school after I realized that uh, there were going to be too many organic chemistry classes at uh, 7 a.m. and uh, just had a more interest in going into finance and business. So I switched over and uh, our school did not offer internships. This is 1987. Uh, but I managed to uh, convince our careers uh, and development folks that uh, they should let me uh, do an internship with the local American Hockey League franchise. It was the uh, Hartford Whalers minor league team. I convinced them that they should uh, let me work for them for credit. And uh, it was a solid 16, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, 16 credits that I did pretty well. So that helped with the GPA. But uh, I wound up working for a minor league uh, franchise and uh, kind of went from there. Uh, the franchise switched to the New York Rangers affiliation. So I worked uh, with the folks at MSG for uh, some time and then bounced around Dallas and uh, Phoenix and uh, wound up uh, with the, uh, the group that uh, ran uh, the ECHL, the East Coast Hockey League for the NHL. And then uh, found my footing with uh, New Jersey Devils uh, within the first little bit of time that I was with the Devils, we were part of the Yankees and Nets, so that was pretty exciting. My bosses were uh, Lou Lamarillo and uh, Mr. Steinbrenner and, and Randy Levine and Lon Trost and all those folks at the Yankees, and of course, Rod Thorne and so many other good people at the Nets, so that was exciting. And then uh, made my way to Orlando by uh, purchasing uh, with my college roommate a minor league uh, hockey franchise. We brought the Orlando Solar Bears back to Orlando and uh, uh, we actually sold them to the Orlando Magic and I wound up uh, falling into this uh, great opportunity and uh, able to keep my family here in Orlando and uh, I'm here in town over 10 years now. And I got my start, you know, starting to go to school at Arizona State and wanted to be a sports agent, at least I thought I did. And I, uh, I started working for the athletic department um, as a volunteer, I just raised my hand and said, you know, I'd love to learn what you guys do. And after four years of working in many different areas, whether it was with the athletic director on game days or with a specific team during the season, I learned that there was a business outside of just being a sports agent in, in the line of sports. So that led me to my first job, which I was hired by one of the deputy athletic directors who became the athletic director at Drake University. So I went to work in Des Moines, Iowa for a period of time, got to learn a little bit about, uh, about the smaller collegiate athletics administration experience. Uh, then I was recruited to go work for the University of California, Berkeley in their athletic department and fundraising. So um, it was a friend of the athletic director at Drake. So I've been lucky throughout my career that each stop I've gotten to go to, I've been working for a mentor or a mentor's uh, good friend. 
so at Cal, we raised money for a stadium, learned a ton about building facilities and, and how much money and, and planning went into the facility business. And then from, uh, from Cal, I went over into UCF and got to work uh, in the Orlando area, loved my time in Orlando, got to learn about a young school uh, with a spirit like no other. And then from UCF, I was able to go to work at Maryland. And for me, my Maryland experience was truly transformational because we changed a lot um, at, at a school with a lot of tradition. And so we went from uh, a school that was in the ACC to a school that was in the Big Ten. We, we had two new coaches in our two as high profile sports, both basketball and football. And we basically changed our brand at the same time. We had just worked with Under Armour to change all of our marks, our logos, and, and things like that. So for the alums and fans of Maryland, we basically changed everything on them in the period of three years. So it was it was really good change and change that's you know benefited the school and the alums to even to this day. But it's a lot when you're invested in a university and you know everything that you know and love and things that have created unbelievable moments for you and your family have changed overnight. And then I was lucky enough, the deputy athletic director at, at uh, Maryland became the athletic director at Holy Cross. He took me with him to help re revitalize that campus. We built a $105 million project there um, to expand and add some facilities in the athletic department. And then finally, I was recruited back by my, one of my original uh, intern, who I interned for at the Anaheim Angels. I was one of the uh, the people working for the Kansas City Royals, and he connected me to the position here in Phoenix, kind of bringing me home, but also at the same time, I was able to uh, learn a new side of the business with tourism, but really integrate the Major League Baseball component to it. So uh, got to come back home and have been really loving the sports tourism side of things ever since. Yeah, those are great. Um... You know, the topic of today's show is sports tourism, as you mentioned, Joe, and um, I guess a good place to start with is what exactly is sports tourism? How do you define it? What goes into it? Um, and how does it, uh, you know, impact your, your local areas? Well, I, I think, um, Mark, it's, you know, we, we, we've got an interesting model here in Orlando. Um, we're probably one of the last regional sports commissions uh, in the country as uh, just by example, probably if you go back 10 years ago, there were a hundred sports commissions in the United States. There's over 600 now. If you look at the state of Florida, uh, not that long ago, we had 25 sports commissions. We're coming up on about 40. So what's happening is uh, counties, uh, local municipalities have figured out that if they can raise a bed tax or some other way of uh, raising some dollars that they can use to put against uh, recruiting opportunities and incentivizing event organizers to come to their community, what we're finding is, you know, cornfields have been renovated across the country. We're, we're seeing that uh, areas of, you know, that maybe were mixed use that are now uh, being uh, converted into youth uh, sports space. So, um, because of that, you've got more competition and a lot more uh, interest in doing business in this space, not to mention the number of event organizers has grown by leaps and bounds from when, you know, truly uh, youth travel sports evolved 25 years ago and 
went from a billion dollar business to now being a $20 billion business. So here in Orlando, we, um, we represent um, uh, our uh, funding partners and of course the venues within those uh, uh, footprints in uh, Osceola, Orange, Lake and Seminole counties, the city of Orlando, and of course uh, work on behalf of uh, a number of uh, opportunities for the state of Florida um, so we, we find ourselves in, in, you know, like I said, a unique situation. We have over 35 venues that we bid on behalf of. Um, that takes uh, a lot of collaboration, uh, an awful lot of uh, uh, folks that need to be educated on the process. We're very lucky in that, you know, we're a top tourism community. We had 76 million visitors a couple of years ago. We put 50 million people through our airport. We have 125,000 hotel rooms. So leadership, elected officials, our, our C-level uh, folks in our community, they speak the language. So when we're talking about uh, average daily rates and return on investment for economic impact, and we talk about a lot of the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, catchphrases within our industry, most of the folks that we're working with, they're familiar with what we're talking about, and they value uh, what sports tourism and, and the uh, impact it can bring into the community. Of course, driving impact and also uh, driving money back into the bucket where those incentives come from. And of course, uh, collecting sales tax on, on top of that. So uh, we're very fortunate in that, you know, we've got a community that speaks the language and uh, it's very helpful, especially with big marquee uh, opportunities. And maybe we'll talk about it a little later, but I think, you know, a World Cup bid, which is about a $800 million to billion dollar piece of business for our community, it takes a village and uh, it certainly is helpful that we have these uh, wonderful relationships, uh, not just locally, but regionally. And I think, you know, from my perspective, Jason hit everything, you know, perfectly, but we're, our model is a little bit different because we are the municipality that figured out eventually that tourism was going to be a driver for our community, especially when it comes to taxes. And so um, our community put the, the cart before the horse, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but we built a bunch of facilities in the early 2000s to attract sports to our community. And then midway through, you know, 2015, our, our community leadership was like, you know, we have these great facilities, we use them, our community benefits from them, our residents benefit from them, but can't we do more? And so that's how our department evolved. And the state of Arizona, tourism is the number one export that we have in our state. And so that brings in the most money to the state of Arizona. And so each of the cities within Maricopa County, which is, you know, where the city of Phoenix is, have decided and understand that you know the more people that we have coming into our community the less tax burden that there would be on the city and on its residents you know for example last year tourism was able to help each resident in maricopa county take twelve hundred dollars off their taxes so when residents and folks start to see these numbers they want um, more of a, a local initiative in their community. So thus, that's how our department was born. So our jobs are to fill the facilities within our city with sport, with different sports tourism opportunities. Like Jason said, there's many different 
uh, event owners in the space now looking to do different things. We're lucky our major tenant is two major league baseball teams and spring training. So we're able to utilize that to bring in a significant amount of tourists into our community. But then what happens with those facilities that they're using the other nine months of the year? And so our job is to bring in, whether it's amateur, professional, collegiate events into the community that are going to bring, you know, people using, utilizing our hotels, visiting our restaurants, visiting our retail shops, and generating the, that tax revenue outside of the venue. But the city's interest is also to rent the venue. So for us, we're, we're somewhat double dipping in the sense that we're renting, we're taking a rental fee, or we have a revenue share between us and the event. And then we're also pushing them into our hotels, into our community to make that additional tax revenue that's gonna help benefit the general fund for the city at the end of the day. Uh, you know, you both have shared really good reasons on why sports tourism, but you know, who has a vested interest in funding or supporting your organization? And uh, what are the governing structures? It sounds like they might be a little different. You know, there's there's a couple of different models, and um, we have, uh, as I mentioned, a unique one in that we're more of a regional entity. But um, uh, I think there's there's two different uh, structures, maybe even three, uh, for a traditional sports uh, commission. You can be embedded in the CVB. Uh, you could stand on your own, or you could be a government agency. And in our particular case, we're a standalone uh, private nonprofit. Uh, about 60% of our funding comes from our uh, funding partners, uh, municipal funding partners, uh, the counties that I mentioned, four counties, city of Orlando, state of Florida. Um, so we see funding there, but the other 40% is private dollars that we raise, um, not necessarily through membership, although there are membership organizations out there. Uh, we expanded our board. We had 13 board members. We have 77 now. We had four corporate partners. We have 110, 115 corporate partners now. We, uh, we are a sell, an official seller of attraction tickets, which obviously in our market is, is an opportunity for us to raise dollars. Uh, we also serve a lot of the events that come. So the events will come into town and we'll be hired to uh, provide services for those uh, stakeholders and event managers. And, uh, and then lastly, you've got sort of these unique opportunities that'll present themselves over, over time where we can uh, leverage our influence and access uh, to, uh, to assist, um, whether it be with uh, brick and mortar projects and infrastructure and, and other types of uh, uh, either testimonial work that we'll do or research that we'll do uh, on behalf of so many of the folks that we work with. So, um, a good model for us. It works for us, especially in this you know current environment where um, we did not want to continue to rely on uh, government resource. Uh, it, it's important for us to have that private funding. Uh, in addition to being able to make discretionary decisions, um, it, it gives us a little bit more freedom, uh, especially the competitive environment, the incredibly competitive uh, environment we find ourselves in where uh, you could have somebody bidding on a piece of business, and the last thing we want that to become is part of open record requests by our competition. 
so we want to make sure that we uh, provide ourselves. <laughs> every Joe's smiling while you're saying that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, listen, it, you know, there's it, it, no secret. If you work for a, uh, a you know, a public entity, and uh, you don't have a way of uh, protecting documents uh, from uh, open record request, uh, I could just as easily, you know, if I'm seeing, you know, another community bidding on something, uh, you know, request that information and get a sense of what the other uh, party is doing to uh, win the business. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, you talk about competition and uh, I know Joe knows this, uh, two, uh, two cycles ago when the NCA sent out uh, about, RF, about 500 RFPs for uh, NCA championships, there were 800 bids submitted. This last time around, there were over 3000 bids submitted for those same 500 championships. So. The competition level and uh, everybody is uh, is very savvy and they're very uh, uh, educated on process. Um, so it uh, it's great because uh, it's a great landscape to work through, but at the same time, uh, ultra competitive. To give you a little bit of perspective on what Jason just said, one of the events that was in that bid cycle is an event that Jason and we and our team and surprise kind of share back and forth, which is the NCA Division II Tennis Championship. So one year they're usually in uh, San Lando, the next year they're here in surprise with, uh, with us. So I mean, we, we, we hear from the committees, they, they tell us all this stuff and they're like, we really need your bids. And yet, you know, who's on the other, probably on the other side of the table, who's bidding on it, who has the capacity to meet all their needs and expectations. And yet they're trying to up the ante every time. And without, I, I, I'm thinking back over the past six years, without the two facilities that we have, they're not hosting, they're, they're not, they don't have an event place that they can host and have the confidence in it that they do within the two spaces in Orlando and, and Surprise. So that just is one example of of groups across the country competing for these bids. And it is tough. I mean, for us, we are a government entity. So, you know, I was on a call yesterday where we talked about what can we redact from a, 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 a an information request and what can't we, because one of our business partners, part of their business is material in their contract. And so those are the struggles that a public entity has that, you know, a private entity doesn't have. We do work with this, a group like Jason's and Visit Phoenix that can do some of that, that are a private entity and can do some bidding on our behalf, especially if it's collective, because there's so many metropolitan smaller cities that are in the Phoenix metropolitan area for things like the Super Bowl and for the NCAA uh, basketball tournament. We all work collectively together under that umbrella of what Jason does here in Phoenix. So it's definitely something that we have to then realize it's bigger than us and, and take that funding and be able to put, put it in a way where we can position ourselves as the whole Phoenix metropolitan area, which is I think is the great things that Jason does in Orlando. For us, we're driven, um, we get general fund money from the city of Surprise. So we do benefit that that money comes in from taxes. Um, and it helps us pay the bills, but we're not just paying the bills to bring in business. That's got to cover the facilities that we operate to. So that's our, our baseball stadium, the practice facilities for the Texas Rangers and the Kansas City Royals. We own a, the ten, our tennis facility and our complex here, and we also operate a large event space. So it covered that covers the operations of it. 
And then we also get funding from the state of Arizona and the Arizona Office of Tourism, which helps us um, you know, bid on events and, and promote ourselves as a destination. And then we also receive dollars from an additional bed tax that we have, probably similar to what other cities have. It's about 4.62% um, that we put into a tourism fund for every time that you're staying in a hotel here in the city of Surprise. And also there's a tax that on Airbnbs and, and vacation rentals that we also see come in. So that's how our department is funded. We also sell sponsorships. We also sell memberships. We have a visitor's guide that we collect money on. So we have a, a bunch of different avenues that we utilize to supplement the government funding so that when we need to have additional dollars for a specific bid or a partner, we always have access to it. One of the things that kind of strikes me uh, listening to what you're talking about is the, the depth or the, the breadth of different kinds of sporting organizations that you work with and try to attract to your areas. Um, everything from, you know, you mentioned super high profile things like Super Bowls, international events like World Cup. Um, but I'm assuming this goes all the way down through college sports and then to, to amateur sports, youth sports. Um, but love to hear a little bit more about maybe some of the details or differences or similarities that go into working with that varied of a, uh, a constituency. Yeah, no, Mark, it's, it's, you know, it's a great question. It's sort of core to the business that, uh, you know, Joe and I do. I think you, you can break it into six buckets. Um, NCA is on a fairly regular cycle. So every four years, we have an opportunity to get in there. Obviously, there's conference championships and uh, here with UCF and Stetson and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the number of uh, colleges that we have in our community. Uh, we have an opportunity to do some ancillary work over and above. Uh, UCF just brought the Hula Bowl in. Um, that's completely outside of the, the, the spectrum. But um, NCA is one. You mentioned amateur sports. That's probably a solid 60, 65% of our business. Um, goes without saying to have a, an ESPN Y World of Sports in our backyard and so many other good facilities. Uh, we're able to handle some, some uh, large uh, youth tournaments. Esports is becoming a big deal. Um, it really feels like youth travel sports did 20 years ago, billion dollar business, the screen time. I, I have four children and two of them, the middle boys are, uh, you know, they're going to become professional at Fortnite and Madden and a couple other things uh, with the amount of time I was laughing with my wife. Uh, we, we, uh, we looked at their screen time and, uh, and they, they have full-time jobs. Apparently Fortnite is, is one of them. Uh, so esports obviously is on the rise. Uh, that marquee business, um, you know, for us lately, it's been a lot of international soccer. It's been uh, Monster Jam World Finals, WrestleMania. We have such a good relationship with uh, the folks at WWE, uh, and of course, you know, the NCA big uh, uh, business with tennis uh, that Joe mentioned, and and uh, March Madness basketball. And then the last two areas. Uh, national govern, you know, the, the, the USOC, USO, you know, Olympic and Paralympic Committee work uh, that we do in Colorado Springs. And now, you know, they've, they've spread out all over the country. But uh, that uh, those, those uh, governing body of sport work, especially tied to, um, you know, we, we're just, you know, coming through the Japan Olympics. Uh, we anticipate a lot of opportunity. Uh, pre-Paris in 24 with those Summer Olympics, uh, and of course, pre-Los Angeles in 28, that's going to be a big opportunity for the United States 
uh, here, you know, especially uh, for us, Summer Olympics, uh, we, you know, in Orlando and, and certainly probably in Phoenix, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of winter Olympic uh, sport uh, activity, but, uh, and then, you know, the last category for us, which we're seeing, and I know we're going to talk about uh, return on investment and calculating impact, but we probably see two and a half to three times the amount of spending from international visitors. So we're focused heavily on work with uh, the international, uh, the international folks, the IOC in Lausanne, Switzerland, so many great partners there to see if we can't bring some of these big uh, tournaments, festivals, championships, uh, open uh, opportunities uh, here uh, to the state of Florida and, and work with our partners in Miami and Jacksonville and Tampa and see if we can't uh, attract some of the, uh, the large uh, international opportunities. So six buckets for us. And um, the balance, uh, candidly, is uh, there is no balance. Uh, you are at a little bit of the mercy of the calendars and how much lead time that event organizers want to provide. Uh, there are some organizers, they give you six weeks to fill out a, uh, an RFP and a bid submission. And uh, World Cup right now looks like it's going to be a five-year bid cycle. We'll have been working on this for five full years. So, um, and there's plenty in between. So you're, you're truly, uh, COVID has thrown a wrench in that, of course, because many of the cycles have changed, although it's given event organizers an opportunity to rethink and reimagine the way they do their business. But, um, you know, sometimes it's a fire drill and sometimes you got years to, uh, to work it out. Yeah, the, it's been amazing as we started our department in, in more of a focus on tourism that there is so many different areas and buckets that you're focusing on. It's been quite a bit overwhelming for us to explain to our, 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 our political group that wants to know, why can't we bring in things tomorrow? It said, well, there's these bid things called bid cycles. And a lot of those bid cycles, like Jason mentioned, can be quick or they can be very, very long. And so sometimes the bid awards are going out so far in advance that if you want to make an impact in your community, it's going to be five years down the road. You could do a great year of business right now. And some, a lot of that might not show up in the next five years. So explaining what that cycle looks like has been really important to us and being able to show some of the payoffs from when we first started four years ago to now and what we've been able to bring in. I think for us, a large share of our business is Major League Baseball. So we, spring training is always, is, you know, that's the holy grail for us. So we focus a lot on spring training, but then there's quite a bit that goes on at our facilities that brings people to surprise that's around Major League Baseball. So you have our traditional spring training, then we go into this area of extended spring training where it's still a lot of minor league baseball that's good quality, that people are staying longer in our destination to, to see that part of it. Then it starts to get hot in Phoenix. So sometimes it's hard to bring in your traditional uh, visitor to come to the come because it's 105, 110 degrees every day. We've made a niche for ourselves in, in amateur baseball, and that's our bread and butter in the summer months. So from May until August, amateur baseball is bringing in 100 to 300 teams into our city every weekend, and they're filling our hotels, filling our restaurants. They're the ones 
spending money in our community. So we've made long-term partnerships and long-term agreements with a lot of the major operators and, and event, event operators within that space. So, you know, perfect game for us and USA Baseball and Wilson Baseball are huge partners of ours where they're not only using just our facility, they're using our facility, which has 15 different base, major league baseball fields. And they're partnering with another facility that's about 15 minutes from us and using the same fields for that same tournament. So we're working together with that other destination to keep those room nights in our area, but also keep those teams in our space. So that's been a big focal point of us when we, when we can't have the traditional sports tourism going on. And then, you know, we focus on a lot of what Jason talked about. Esports is huge. We're working with a couple of different traveling esports groups to set up camp within our stadium. But also, you know, we're working with other groups to have a constant esports influx uh, in convention centers. Our, our partner, the Texas Rangers, they own an esports team. So we've kind of tapped into them to see what we can do to bring some of that to Phoenix and be another partner in that development landscape. Um, but then we also host the Arizona Fall League for baseball. So back to the Major League Baseball being our, 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 our big component to our facilities. And they're here for a month and a half. And then we go into a developmental league. So there's constantly baseball tourism, but we look to supplement around that and utilize that to just be a catalyst to the other things going on. You know, we have made some partnerships not only with the NCAA, but to go into the college space we've become a, we've looked to make ourselves a great destination for neutral site tournaments. So the first two weekends of baseball, we're hosting eight to 12 teams here at our facility to kick off the college baseball season. So, you know, we have a long-term agreement with Oregon State University, who's been a national champion in 2016, and they bring and travel quite a bit. For us, that was the big component, getting a, a tenant partner that was going to bring a lot of travel. So for us, when we're looking to build these neutral site tournaments, it's not just let's get a tournament here, let's get the right teams here competitively, but also from a travel perspective so that it does both. Our number three market that comes into our, into our state outside of Kansas City and Texas because of the Major League Baseball teams is the state of Oregon. So, and, and we can solely track that back to those, those baseball tournaments. So again, you know, with whatever operations and facilities that you have or, or opportunities, we look to take advantage of some long-term partnerships to be able to, to use those. It's very clear that each of your organizations are enhancing the regional identity of, you know, of the areas. Uh, you know, I recently read that, uh, you know, bringing sports events can actually help highlight health and nutrition in a community or, you know, that sports tourists on average spend two to four times the amount of money than an, an average tourist because of longer stays or, you know, larger groups. So the question is, how do you dial in and measure that from an ROI perspective? What are the numbers and metrics that your organizations use to show? Uh, how you're enhancing the region. Yeah, so to get in the weeds, um, which, which will actually shed a little bit of light, um, we're focused on average daily spending. So it, it sort of starts right there. So for us, you're evaluating the value of a uh, in-state, in-region uh, 
attendee, in-state, out-of-region attendee, out-of-state attendee, and then of course an international visitor. So we have, uh, and of course adult and child uh, goes into that mix as well. Um, I think that um, it's safe to say that if you are coming to Orlando for a trade show or a convention, um, you're probably gonna spend almost twice as much as you would if you were coming uh, for a, a youth sports tournament. Um, one individual to a hotel room, maybe you're gonna have dinner at a, a, a steakhouse. Um, you're going to have a, a different experience um, and you're gonna spend a different amount of money um, if you're coming through your company who's paying the freight and uh, then maybe a, a family who's coming in for a um, softball or baseball tournament. Um, obviously the amount of um, bed tax that's drawn from that attendee and then the sales tax in addition to that um, starts to play the role in how much money is collected by the community and then ultimately how those funds are divided into marketing the destination, advertising for the destination, uh, incentives to bring big events into your community and so on. So it all starts with that average daily spend. And in our situation here, you know, when you're looking at 76 million visitors uh, in a fiscal year, uh, for us that can drive, you know, north of 275 to $300 million in bed tax then then is then divided up uh, into the community to continue to enhance and uh, invest back in future years. And uh, I know Joe mentioned it. I mean, we're looking at business. It's, it's almost like the game of Tetris. I mean, you know, the blocks just keep falling and you've got to find a place to put all those blocks as they're falling. We're, we're looking at business through 2031. Um, I know our convention center is booking out through 2040. So, um, all of these calculations are really important when you're weighing and measuring, well, do I take this business and put it in this location? Uh, we've got, you know, second, third largest convention center in the country. Um, you know, if, if their space is not available, can we pivot and use uh, convention space with so many of our hotels that have, I mean, Las Vegas, Chicago, there's so many cities, uh, that have done such a great job in that convention space, no different in sports. So it's a matter of, you know, venues, return on investment, we're going to spend X. Um, we want to measure, you know, probably three things. We want to measure the, um, the, uh, the economic impact that it's going to drive to our community. We want to market, you know, we want to see what the eyeballs are going to be. Certainly if there's an event like World Cup, which is going to be broadcast to more than half the world's population, 3.5 to 3.8 billion viewers uh, when the World Cup was in Russia. And then lastly, for the enjoyment of the residents that are here in our community, because uh, ultimately 20, 30, 40% of the folks that are gonna attend these events uh, are gonna be from our community. And, and they want the, 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 the great you know, thing about living in Orlando is so many great options um, as we bring in uh, you know, just this huge portfolio of events uh, into our community. So really important that everybody understands uh, those numbers and what's important ultimately, those relationships with our airport and hoteliers and restaurateurs come into play. And then I'll end with this, because you talked about a community being versatile and, and what these events can do for, uh, for the community. And it's not always just about that, because I'll give you three examples. 
we're looking forward to, we're going to host the um, Special Olympics USA Games. Could be one of the largest humanitarian efforts in our state's history with uh, over 5,000 Olympians uh, coming into our community from across the country and, and uh, you know, some of the uh, surrounding islands down here in Florida uh, with, with all of those athletes taking part in that uh, wonderful event. We have Warrior Games coming this fall. So of course, being able to celebrate uh, the folks that have uh, uh, done such incredible work and who have defended and, and, uh, and served our country. And then lastly, another interesting piece is when, we've, when we're doing our World Cup bid, those folks are asking questions about human rights, human trafficking, uh, LGBTQIA plus rights in your community, sustainability, inclusion. Um, there are a lot of other conversations that are happening in 2021 that weren't happening 20 years ago. So a little bit of a broader uh, response to your question, but I think it just shows the breadth of how many uh, uh, conversations we're having on so many different types of uh, 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 metrics and, uh, and points that event organizers are evaluating our markets and our ability to host. And I'm just going to add a few things because, you know, what Jason's doing is exactly what we're looking at. That average daily spend for us is exactly the metric that we point to, which converts for us and our community into taxes. So what, what's that average daily spend? And then what's the tax revenue that's come into the city from that? We all look at the rest of it. We look at the average daily rate. The economic impact is what we use to justify why we're spending money on bringing an event into our community. But that average daily spend is really the, the, a key metric for us. But to give perspective on what you know, tourism can do to enhance the regional identity, just think about this. The city of Surprise, where, where I'm at, with population in 20 years ago, before spring training started, was 30,848 people. Today, in our community, and as of the most recent census, we're at 149,558. So sports has been the catalyst to bring those people to our community, and we know that. We have, we have, we have many different surveys and things. What brought you to surprise? We see that 20% of people were first introduced to surprise before buying a home through coming to a spring training game. We have another 10% that was introduced through their kids participating in an amateur youth sporting event. So we're seeing 30% of our future residents coming directly from tourism activities that we in sports are doing. And so for us, that's not just that one-time one tax revenue that they're putting in the community, that's long-term tax revenue. So we look at sports as a way to be a gateway into our community so that whether you're buying a second home, whether you're moving, you're gonna think of the city and say, wow, this was such a great experience. And for us, when we're looking at these things, Jason was talking about you know, the residential experience. We have to have buy-in from our residents to be able to do a lot of the things that we do. So making sure that a lot of some of the things that are coming into our community are something that they believe in, something that they want to be a part of, that's going to continue to keep everyone in our community, the politicians, the leadership, the residents happy so that we can continue to expand our footprint and bring more things that are appealing that they want to be a part of into our community. 
Thank you both so much for your time today. Uh, you know, I, I want to take a moment before we wrap here uh, to thank Joe um, and Jason. So Joe, you actually, when I was a student, gave me an opportunity for my first time role at UC, UC for first time full-time role at UCF Athletics. Um, and you also opened up so many doors for other students while you were there. And now you teach at ASU. Um, Jason, while I was at Iowa Insurance Office America with John Rittenauer, we structured a deal with your Orlando Solar Bears uh, and the team there. And you also opened up a tremendous amount of opportunities for students at UCF and at Rollins and at Full Sail um, and continue to do that through your work. So I, I just wanna to, to, to point that out and then also ask each of you as we wrap up, what is your advice for students? You both have worked with so many um, and then we'll close out the podcast from there. So thank you. No, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be with you. And uh, uh, you know, I'm glad you asked the question because it's um, been important to me. Uh, it, it's interesting, I'm old enough now where I have uh, interns from a couple of years ago being hired by interns that were my interns 20 years ago. Uh, so you continue to sort of pay it forward. Um, if you go back far enough, it's a fairly tight knit group in this community. And uh, I think that, um, you know, if certainly you go back into the late 80s, early 90s, sports marketing, uh, sports administration, the network business, certainly the way that we do business uh, within social media and so many other platforms, both linear, non-linear, um, it's evolved uh, uh, 10, 20 fold um, opportunities. And uh, when I started, uh, very few women working in front offices, that has completely changed. Uh, and, and that's great uh, for the industry. So I, I would say that uh, the advice is very simple. When I look to hire, and uh, these were values that were instilled, uh, Lou Lamarillo and working at the Devils for so many years, being around the Yankee organization. Uh, we look for three qualities. We look for uh, competent, career-focused individuals, not job-focused, career-focused. Uh, they're invested and they're, they're, they're certainly spending uh, time both uh, at the office, although that, that, that phrase has changed, hasn't it? Uh, you know, at the office and away from the office, invested in their careers and growing, you know, and, and evolving and, and developing a path. So competence, uh, for sure, number one. Um, unparalleled work ethic. Ultimately, you're going to, it's a competitive world. It's a competitive environment. There are a lot of folks, a lot more folks than, that are interested in being involved than, than certainly were when I started 30 plus years ago. So you have to have that uh, self-motivation. You have to have uh, a, 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 a really uh, an ability to be a self-starter and, and be motivated and, and contribute. And then I think the last, uh, the last item for us when we hire uh, loyalty, and it's a two-way street. There's not this, it's not just the expectation that I just hired you, you're loyal to me. I, I need to earn that respect and I need to earn the opportunity to, to have that trust built up. But it's a loyalty ultimately to yourself, the way you present yourself, the way you go about your business, the way you conduct business on social media for your own, uh, for your own uh, uh, platforms that you're promoting yourself on, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or so many others. Um, so you, that loyalty to yourself to make sure that you're presenting yourself in the best light and to your coworkers. You know, for us, 
you know, we're so fortunate in sports that the team is organic sort of to what we're doing, especially if you work in team sports. I mean, you have this, you know, a great environment around you. Um, so it's easy to feel like you're part of the team and then you kind of watch the wins and losses out on the pitch or the field or, or the ice surface or whatever it may be. So uh, ultimately, you, you want to find folks that uh, take a lot of pride in, in the way they present themselves and go about their, their business and they're community minded and they're good people and um, uh, uh, the opportunity to, um, you know, uh, have people that you want to work with on a day in and day out basis. For me, that's the, those are the things that we look for. And uh, certainly every opportunity that we can either mentor or guide people through their, uh, through their journey, um, we're, we're happy to do that. And we're so thrilled that we touch so many people um, and, and have the opportunity to work with so many folks in an in industry that I've you know, loved uh, from day one uh, when I started as an intern back in 1987. And just to kind of close that out, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to take and, and get a lot of great advice and guidance in my, my career in sports. And it's something that I'm passionate about, but the, my mentors were able to see that passion in me and they were able to give me opportunities. And I love being able to do what Jason said and pass it on and, and, and grant others other opportunities and, and help students you know, find their passion in this and see them grow. I'm lucky enough that I have a couple of former interns that got to work for the Phoenix Suns and have been working for the Phoenix Suns and for that to see their excitement, passion going into the playoff run this year, that was the highlight for me to, to, to see that happen. But I think to add on to Jason's attributes, there's only two other things that I would say is attitude is everything and having, making sure that you always have a positive attitude whether you're collecting surveys as a, as a volunteer part in learning the industry, or whether you're working with the highest level CEO or COO of a company, that your attitude is always positive and that you're looking for ways to get better. And I think attitude can overcome so many other things in this industry that it's, it's paramount to, to being successful. And then I would just, the last thing is communicating. I think a lot of times in our industry, we take communications for granted. It's part, it's even an, it's a, even a department in some areas that communication is that important to our industry. But I think in sports, if you communicate what you're looking for, what you want to do, what you want to accomplish and ask questions, that's going to make you infinitely better. And being able to, to do that, whether it's in a large group or a one-on-one -on -one setting, communication is key to being successful in a lot of industries and taking the most from any opportunity you're afforded in sports. So to add on to Jason's critical things, communication and attitude will get you a long way in the sports industry. And that's a wrap. Join us next episode where we talk about new industry problems and solutions with Charles Campisi of Engagement.